0: Today we're turning to the book of Joshua, chapter 5, the sixth book in the Old, Old Testament, in the Bible. If you uh, have heard about Joshua, which most people have, maybe even outside the church, um, you, you might, uh, you probably think Joshua, and then you think immediately what? Jericho, that's right, the walls of Jericho. Everybody, that's Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, the walls came tumbling down, we know that. But what's interesting to me as I've been looking at this book and thinking about times of transition is that I have seen that the, Joshua, that the battle of Jericho doesn't occur until six, the sixth chapter. And there's a lot that happens from chapter 1 to chapter 5 to prepare them for the battles they have to face. And then it goes from chapter 6 to about chapter 8, the aftermath of, of Jericho. And then there's a couple chapters on the battles that they have to fight, and then that's, that's over. So it's actually a relatively small portion of this book and a lot of other things to reflect on. And, and I want you to see in today as uh, Joshua 5 is kind of the prelude to the battle that they were going to fight in, in Jericho. And I'll explain, uh, I think, some perspectives that we need to hear from that as we get into the sermon. But let's listen to God's Word, and this is what happens before the Battle of Jericho, after they had crossed the Jordan River. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At the time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth, Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people came out who had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. Oh, sorry. That's the end. <laughs> sorry. It's like, oh, keep reading to that. All right, let's break. Father in heaven, thank you, O Lord, for revealing yourself to us through creation and through ourselves whom you've made in your image. We thank you that your revelation is all around us of who you are and that we can know you and that we can see the greatness of you, our God. We ask, O Lord, uh, that you would would help us to see that and reflect upon it often. But we also thank you and praise you that we have your word, where you've spoken to us and left your words to us in written form. We ask, O Lord, that you would continue to teach us through them by the same spirit which you inspired them, inspire us. And, O Lord, we pray that you would encourage us by these words and also convict us for where we need to let go of things that we've held on to wrongly. For, where, um, for having wrong perspectives, for making ourselves too much the center of the universe, for our pride, for our contempt for others. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to, to be able to humble ourselves before you and seek your grace and to show forth your love to those around us. Empower us, then, through your word. Teach us the lessons that you taught to Israelites long ago as we contemplate the battles that we have to face in the days to come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the context of this passage, they are considering battles in which they have to fight. And uh, it's important for us because we're going to have battles too. Um, in our world, there is, you can say, a sort of cold war between the West and Russia, which is hot in Ukraine. And, but there's tensions in a variety of places. But even with our own nation... You have a pretty severe struggle between the right and the left. Um, And we're going to have battles, too, on smaller scales in our workplaces, in our schools, in our ministries and churches, in our families, and in interpersonal conflict. And sometimes these battles are necessary. In this world, we're going to have to fight for for justice, for truth. We're going to have to sometimes defend ourselves or defend others. We're going to have to defend our nation. These are things that are part of a fallen world. And so, as we're part of these, um, we also look here about battles that Joshua is going to fight. And we also can think that um, there's there's problems with battles in that even when they're good, even when the basic cause is good, that we can lose perspective. We can let our enemies or those who oppose us or who irritate us Become the focus in all we think about. We can make the rightness of our cause a basis of improper moral pride. We can let it be. All these things become about us and fail to put things in a larger context. And because battles are often violent, even if not physically, but uh, in terms of the force that is involved, it's easy to let it get out of bounds. Now, not everyone here may feel like they're in a battle. But even, I thought, what we're going to say today about being in battles where there's really an intense conflict like Joshua is going to face can also apply to sort of lesser battles, we might say. People who we struggle with, relationship problems, uh, issues in our churches or state. that We might not say these are our enemies, but things that irritate us and that we struggle with. What we're going to see here is that God comes to the Israelites on the eve of the battle and he gives them a perspective that helps them to engage with people and engage in these battles in a way that doesn't let it get out of bounds. He challenges them to be, um, as we're going to see, in the battle. They have to fight it, but to also, in a sense, be above it as well. And so that's what we want to talk about today, is the perspective, three perspectives that can help us as we have to be part of the struggles of this life. I, I, we are going to be part of struggles How can we engage in them really and truly without letting those things get out of bounds and and falling to the temptations that so often happen when we have struggles with people or problems or institutions or other sides? So let's look at that together in Joshua chapter 5. Now, what had happened is that God had, had brought them to the land of Canaan, and the river blocked their way. It was at flood stage and they were not able to ca- cross. And so they would have had to wait till it diminished, which would have been a long period of time. But God said, send the ark before you. And what he did is he stopped the river and dry ground appeared and they were able to cross. And so they were able to begin taking the land. But what, and what happened is when the kings of that nation, of the nations, heard about it, Their hearts melted with fear. They thought, we're going to lose this battle and actually begin at various points to attack the people of Israel, including the people from Jericho, as Joshua 24 says. And so what we see is that a key image from the book of Joshua, the sword, the sword is drawn out. In this case, it's a little sword, a little sword that is made. And you might think that they're, now they're going to go to fight and, and battle against these kings and take the land that God has told them to take. But instead, they take the swords, the little swords that they have, and they turn them on themselves. Where does the sword fall first? On the men of Israel. And so they are circumcised. Now, it might be a little bit uncomfortable to say we're going to talk about circumcision. But it's actually a pretty big theme in the Bible. You may not like it, but it's just there it is. And it kind of pops up all over the place, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it's actually pretty important. It was actually used often in the, in the ancient world as a sort of religious rite. And then God took up this, I, this, this rite, and he said, I'm going to use this to be a sign of the covenant, or covenant that I have between you and me, that I'll be a God to you and to your children after you. And the cutting off of a portion of themselves reminded them that they had to die to themselves, that they weren't just okay the way they were. There had to be a change. It reminded them, in turning the sword, you might say, on themselves, that they too were under the, ju- the judgment of God. In many ways, we could say that the, the Canaanites, were, in some, were, or some ways at least, were a sinful people that were worse than the Israelites. They were known for sacrificing their children to the Baals, to their gods, and, and carried out a lot of horrific things. But the fact that they began here by turning the knives on themselves showed that they too were also sinners. That they were going to meet sinners, they were going to fight sinners... But they themselves were sinners, and they were in need of the grace of God. And I think that's an important lesson for the church today, and especially in our land where we've had a lot of struggles about important issues politically, uh, issues that that are involve some of the most basic and most important uh, issues that we can talk about, including uh, um, whether the the right to actually live. And that we're for a, for a baby in the womb. That's a pretty serious issue. Um, we're talking about the the foundation of our nations, of nations in terms of the integrity of the family. And that's an, a huge issue and it's an important issue. And it's one that, that needs to be contended for. But in, in this time and all time, we also need to remember that as we're engaging in these things, that, that we not lose sight of the fact that we are a baptized people. And that means that when we approach the world, we're approaching people who need to be cleansed from their sins, and baptism has told us that we need to be cleansed from our sins, because baptism is now fundamentally what circumcision was in the Old Testament. It's a reminder of our need for cleansing grace. And so, as we enter enter into the world, we look to the world, and we can say... Yes, there may be things they do worse than us. Sometimes we do things worse than them. But we, and there may be battles we have to fight against the world. And yet, at the same time, we recognize that we all stand condemned before the judgment of God in our need of the cleansing of Christ. Now, the people of Israel had actually gone into the wilderness and they had not been circumcised. And so they needed to experience this to prepare them for what was to come. Similar to what happened to Moses when he was called out of Midian to go back into Egypt. His, son, his sons had not been circumcised and he had to circumcise them. And the Lord held the sword over him. Without that, he reminded him, you need to exercise the sword or the sword will come upon you. You're all under the judgment of God. And so it was a teaching to them as well. But there is another aspect of the teaching of circumcision that's also very important. Uh, In verse 8, it says that after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Now get the picture here. Maybe not too closely thinking of the picture, but the basic idea. So here they are, they enter into the land and they make themselves basically utterly helpless before all their enemies. And what a powerful reminder to them. That, this, that what they were going to do was not primarily about them. Or even about their strength or their effort. Just like Jericho was going to be. But it was upon God and what he had done. In Genesis 34. The, the, the sons of Jacob. Had gone to the Shechemites. Because one of them had violated their sister. And they said well I want to marry her. And he said well. You, Everybody circumcise you. Circumcise themselves, and then they could be part of us. And they did that, and they went in and killed them all. And that was a horrible thing that they did. But it emphasizes the point that that's the context here. Basically, Israel did that to themselves just as they enter into the land. It seems like a terrible military strategy. But it reminded them what Joshua was to tell them, message he was going to give them, From God in in chapter twenty four, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also, the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. What a powerful lesson to remember that as we're facing the struggles, the challenges, the problems of this life, that we recognize that we rely on the Lord, and it is ultimately His to take care of these things, and not ourselves. Yes, they had to fight, but they needed a sense of humility. And the next thing they did also reminded them of that. Because they celebrated the Passover supper. It's a similar reminder. There's a connection. You see that in this time the manna stopped and they were now celebrating the Passover. And there's a connection between manna, the Passover, and the Lord's Supper. Because all are sort of like giving food from God. They all involve bread. And it reminds us that God is the source of our life. He gives us the bread of life. Not one of us can have life unless he provides for us. But it also points to the fact that we need a restoration in the one who says, I am the bread of life, our Lord Jesus, and who said about the bread of the Lord's Supper, this is my body which is given for you. It is a reminder that the source of our life and the source of our salvation is from the Lord. However, There's another key message in celebrating the Passover. Because the Passover reminded them not only where the source of their salvation lay, but also that they needed it. Because God had said to them in Exodus chapter 12, On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the the plague on the firstborn, the death of the firstborn was a judgment that was actually going to be carried out everywhere in Egypt including on the Israelites. But God provided a way to be protected from that judgment by the blood of the lamb. And then the the judgment would pass over them, the angel of death would pass over them, and they would be saved by the blood of the Lamb. Now what's interesting here is that I think this would have been a very hard word for them. The Egyptians were oppressors. They had enslaved the people of uh, of Israel. They had even killed their children. And so for God to say, basically, you all are under judgment, very well might have felt painful to them to make an equivalence in some ways between Egypt and Israel. And I think I would say if someone is suffering oppression, if someone is suffering abuse, I'd be very cautious with that message. Don't say, well, you're a sinner too. That's probably not a good way to do it. Actually, it's definitely not a good way to do it but it's still a perspective that's needed in the right way it is a perspective that that is needed for our own for the healing of the oppressor over the oppressed and the abused is is to find their hope for salvation for deliverance in the lord and to see their need for it and that in a way can can moderate the feelings that we might have it can help us to give a perspective even while we stand against oppression even while we stand against injustice, even while we stand against abuse, that that person can find some recognition, and this is the Lord's context, in getting a perspective a little bit beyond their own struggle. That's what the Lord is saying here. Now, there's one more way that God is going to teach this. Jesus shows up with his presence. And he does this, when I say Jesus, um, I mean that that Jesus actually existed before he was born. He's been God from all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. And you will see that he comes in the Old Testament in a variety of ways. As the angel of the Lord. And he comes as the one who's acknowledged as God and worshipped as God, sacrificed to as God. And he comes as one who can command like God can command. Not every angel in the Old Testament is the the angel of the Lord. But he is present there and appears in the Old Testament in this way. And what happens is that he appears to Joshua holding what? A sword. And Joshua asks an obvious question. He sees an armed person. Who are you for? Us or our enemies? And you see, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of battle, in the midst of problems with people, that is where our mind really easily goes. It is how we get comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. We deal with our anxiety through polarization. And so we simply say, are you for us or for our enemies? And this was not a completely wrong perspective either. They had enemies. They were real enemies. And they were really against them. But what we see that Jesus does is he says, he may say, yes, okay. But I'm going to reorient your thinking here. And I'm going to help you see a bigger, something bigger. And he responds this way. Neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Yes, in conflict there are sides. But that's not the only thing that is part of reality. There's a bigger battle. The battle of Christ versus Satan. The battle of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. The battle of God's light and redemption versus the power of darkness. And every battle that we have in this life, every struggle, every problem, needs to be reintegrated into that context. So that we see things not just about us, In our world, which is still significant, which is still important to God, but it's just not the only thing. It's just not the sum of things. And when we're struggling, when we fear, when we have anxiety, when we feel attacked, it's easy to go there. But Jesus comes to us and says, Neither. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua then had the right reply he said, he didn't say, well, then how do you fit into my battle? He actually said, what are your orders? When he says, what's your message? He's saying, you're the commander. I'm the servant. What are your orders? What are your orders? And I think that that's a perspective that can help us in whatever problem we're facing today. Whatever struggle you have, whatever struggle you may have left behind back at home. That we come back to see the Lord as the Lord, as the commander of the Lord's army and say, yeah, I have things I think need to be done. But what are your orders? Let me listen. Listen to what the Lord will say. And he'll tell you. He'll make it clear what he wants you to do. We have to listen. And What did the Lord want Joshua to do? To see the glory and transcendence of God. That's, your, that's his first order. Take off your sandals. The place where you are is holy ground because I'm here. See how great and awesome the Lord is. See how... Lift your eyes above the problems of earth, across from the battles that we are facing in this world today, in our nation, our families, and in as individuals, and see the greatness of the glory of God. If he was here, he might say, look at these mountains and look beyond it to the one to whom they're pointing, who made them all. And let that be the context in which you engage with the tough things that you have to engage. It is the sense of God's absolute transcendence that helps kind of dislodge us from the places where we get stuck and enables us to move forward in service to him for his glory and for the good of those around us. Now, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend. And to this day, we honor the soldiers who fought for this nation, Um, their sacrifice, the hard things they faced. When I think about the soldiers who sacrificed for our nation, my mind always goes first to the scenes from Saving Private Ryan, where they stormed the beach of Normandy in the face of machine guns, mowing down their, their fellow soldiers. This is the ultimate sacrifice that we can make in this world, and they deserve to be honored. And when we think about the battle they were fighting in World War II, there has is, there is rarely been in the history of the world a war where we say, this is good versus evil. Like, it's almost like, it's almost so much so that, like, the only people, person we can really say is evil is Hitler. It's like, everybody agrees on that. Like, this was, he needed to be defeated, right? So we're talking, why I say that is, like, this is a, this is a war where justice is involved. This is a liberation of nations from not only control by another nation, but absolute tyranny, genocide, destruction, just awful, horrible things. And so it's like, this is, this is what we're talking about. This is a real battle where there was like as, as much as we can have almost in this world, good versus evil. And it's interesting, the United States, took, it took us a while to get there. As Winston Churchill may have said, America will always do the right thing after they have exhausted all other possibilities. But one man who actually recognized that this needed to be engaged was Reinhold Niebuhr one of the leading American theologians of the 20th century. He saw very clearly that this was an issue that had to be faced. And he said, this is not going to go away, and we need to fight it now. And he said that very early. But one thing I love about him is that he always could kind of, like, he could see that perspective, and then he'd also add other things that would help us look on these things in the right way. And what he said is that we as Christians, in whatever struggle we're in, need to be in the battle. There's things we have to fight for. But whenever we're in the battle, we also need to be above the battle. And I want to listen you to listen to what he said about this, because it kind of summarizes what God was actually saying to us in this passage. He says, To be in a battle means to defend a cause against its peril, a danger. It means to protect a nation against its enemies, to strive for truth, against error, to defend justice against injustice. To be above the battle means that we understand how imperfect the cause is which we defend, that we can contritely acknowledge the sins of our own nations, and that we, also, we know also of our common need of grace and forgiveness. To be above the battle must also mean some reverent and pitying comprehension of the vastness of the catastrophe which has engulfed us all, friend and foe, and some sense of pity for the victims of the struggle, whether ally or enemy. That's what it means. That's what God is calling us to hear, to be in the battle. There's fights we need to have. But as we fight... We also need to be above the battle and keep the perspective of God's transcendence and His grace and our need for it in every time. And we need to remember that there's a bigger battle. Whatever battle we're fighting, we are not the commander. The Lord Jesus is. We need to stop and recognize and humble ourselves before the Lord, even in the midst of great conflict, even in the midst of great danger, and say, What are your orders? What are your orders? So may it be. Amen.